0: Good morning, everyone. If I could have you come in and find your seats. We need to begin. We have a lot of ground to cover uh, this morning in Lesson 5 in our study on the Israel of God. Let's uh, bow together for a word of prayer, and then we'll begin working our way through this lesson. Father in Heaven, I do pray that You would, on this Lord's Day, help us to focus our minds and to have our hearts open uh, to Your Word Uh, We are considering Your Word here in Sunday School and will later in the two services that follow. I pray that You would give us focused minds and open hearts to receive uh, Your Word, uh, which is a light to our feet. I pray that we would be good hearers of the Word of God and that it would bear much fruit in our our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. When I read through uh, chapter 3 of The Israel of God, its worship, I thought... um, okay, how am I going to handle this? It, it's a ton of material, I think too much to give an overview of in a detailed way in our, in our Sunday school hour. Um, but also the, the problem that I saw was that to break it into two would be confusing. I, I think we would get lost in the sustained argument that is developed in this chapter. And so I did work to try to find a way to give you a summary of this chapter, uh, uh Within the time frame that we have, one that is sufficient, but I would highly encourage you to read this chapter for yourself. I think you would benefit from it greatly. I'm going to be giving a very rapid overview of it. Um, I wanted to begin by giving you an overview of the argument that is presented in this chapter, and then we will very quickly walk through uh, Hebrews chapter 7. So, first, an overview of the argument that is presented in this chapter. R- remember, we are talking about the Israel of God. Uh, we are asking ourselves, what should we think about the land of Israel? What should we think about the people of Israel? And this is an obvious, this is an obvious um, issue that Christians have to wrestle with. They had to wrestle with it uh, in the early days of the church. Uh, for a very long period of time, uh, the the land of Israel and the people of Israel were set apart in the world as holy under the old covenant. And there's a great transition that takes place when the Messiah comes and the new covenant is inaugurated. So. Uh, it's a question that the church obviously has to wrestle with. How should we think about the land of Israel? How should we think about the people of Israel? Who is the true Israel of God today? Uh, but also uh, we can hone in upon uh, the priesthood of Old Covenant Israel and the temple that was uh, the center of Old Covenant Israel's worship. How should we think about these things? And and really that is what um, Robertson does here in, in uh, this chapter. He hones in upon... the The idea of worship, priesthood, temple, and he does so by looking at this very interesting figure named Melchizedek, who is mentioned in the Old Testament and in the New. Here's the question that I would like to put to you. I think it does sum things up really nicely. What should Christians think about the prospect of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, which was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and the reinstitution of the ceremonial laws that were given to Israel under the Old Covenant, including the priesthood and the sacrificial system of the temple. Do you understand the question? Uh, what should we think about that, that prospect? Uh, wh- how would we respond if that temple in Jerusalem were rebuilt, and if there were a, 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 a priesthood reestablished and if uh, sacrifices were uh, restarted there at that temple? I, it's an intriguing question to me, and I really do wonder how modern-day professing Christians would respond to it. Um, I have my suspicions that it might not be uh, good. Uh, So to state it a little bit differently, should we expect this? Should we desire to see it happen? If it were to happen, should we celebrate it? Should we be indifferent? Should we oppose it? Um, I, I think you know that my view and our view and I think the biblical view is that we should certainly not celebrate it, Concerning indifference, maybe I mean we have religions of the world who worship as they do, and you know, uh, and we we tolerate that within society, and even encourage a degree of freedom, right? Uh, but I think, theologically speaking, as Christians, we should be opposed to it. It would be an action that would confirm ethnic Israel in her unbelief, uh, in her rejection of Jesus as as the Messiah. And so we begin kind of just with that question to orient our minds here. And then I quote Robertson on page 54 of his book. Um, He says, the letter to the Hebrews, we're talking about this book in the New Testament. The letter to the Hebrews shows that its author had a special concern in this area as he interacted with the struggles of Jewish converts. Um, And what struggle is he referring to? Well, put yourself in the position of being an ethnic Jew in the first century church right after the Messiah has come and with the inauguration of the the New Covenant. What were they struggling with? Well, they were obviously struggling with the passing away of the Old Covenant ceremonial laws leading to the simplicity of New Covenant worship. Put yourself in their shoes. It would have been a very difficult transition to live through, don't you agree? You spent your whole life being raised, in you know you were born and raised, and, and, and had matured under the old covenant and all of its forms. Were, I mean, you know how difficult change is. Could hardly change the service times without, you know, uh, sending people into uh, kind of a, a tizzy about it, right? I, I, I jest, but think about it. But for these for these Jews who came to faith in the Messiah, there was just a radical shift in, in the way in which uh, they worshipped. Uh, the temple itself would be taken away in 70 A.D. So he's talking about this struggle. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews fully appreciated the Old Covenant arrangements, for he recited the divine sanction placed upon the tabernacle's construction. What Robertson means here is that um, the writer to the Hebrews does indicate that these things were very good. Uh, the temple worship and the priesthood and the sacrifices were, they were from God. They were very good under the Old Covenant, but they were meant to pass away, therefore a time. He goes on to say, but he also had a deep understanding of the superiority of the New Covenant, its new temple, its new temple priesthood, and sacrifice. In particular, its priesthood was uniquely significant to him, for it had to do directly with the person and ministry of Jesus. So, if you read through the book of Hebrews, which I actually encourage you to do uh, leading up to this class, I don't know if you are able to do it. You can see that argument being made. He's helping Jewish Christians understand this great transition that's taken place. And he's encouraging them to remain in Christ and to not go back to the old ways. Because the old ways have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus and there's something new and better, far better, far superior that is here. Uh, there's a, 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 the Messiah has come, there's a new priesthood, there's a new temple, there's a new way of worship and it's superior. That's the argument that is made in, in the book of Hebrews. This interest, I quote Robertson again, in the priesthood of Christ... And its impact on the worship practices of the people of the New Covenant manifests itself throughout the book of Hebrews. But the extensive treatment of the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, as mentioned in Psalm 110 verse 4, provides a special focal point for the writer's analysis of this subject. Uh, so what, what Robertson is noticing is that at the, at the heart of the book of Hebrews, uh, everything comes to focus on this one kind of mysterious figure named Melchizedek. He hones in on that, and he spends a lot of time uh, kind of unpacking who this Melchizedek Melchizedek, uh, was, and how he pointed forward to the Messiah, and how Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and and, and what that means. There is a sustained argument that is developed in the book of Hebrews centered upon this figure, Melchizedek, who is mentioned in the Old Testament first in the days of Abraham, but he's brought up again in the days of King David as very significant. okay. So, there is an extensive treatment of Psalm 110 verse 4. The present chapter, uh, the one we're considering in The Israel of God, chapter 3, um, Robertson says, the present chapter will concentrate on his extensive development of the implications of Psalm 110 verse 4 regarding priesthood and worship for the New Covenant as it is found in Hebrews 7. Chapter 7 uh, is the pivotal point of the book of Hebrews with its focus directed um, with its focus directed to an exposition of Psalm 110 verse four, which says here now Psalm 1104, the Lord has sworn you are a priest for, uh, forever, after the order of Melchizedek. This chapter represents one of the fullest expositions of an Old Testament passage that can be found anywhere in the New Testament. Here, this chapter is a reference to Hebrews 10. So, Excuse me, Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 is basically a full exposition of Psalm 110 verse 4. Um, by the way, it is widely accepted that the book of Hebrews is really a sermon. Um, it it's really it was something that was delivered... Orally. There's a lot of indicators pointing in that direction. Um, so, as you read it, you, you, can, you, you can read it as if, as if it is a sermon manuscript. And so, you can get a taste, perhaps, of how preaching was, at least from time to time, uh, in the early days of the church. So, let me give you uh, Robertson's argument, and then we will walk through Hebrews 7. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. Oh, I have it here listed out, first of all, because I want it fresh in your minds. It is a psalm of David. It is a psalm of King David. That's very important to notice. And here is what King David wrote The Lord, notice all capitals. So the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, so David is referring to another Lord who is over him. He is king, not an earthly Lord, right? Uh, so, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, and this should sound very familiar to you, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That verse, Psalm 110 verse 1, is often cited in the New Testament. Who is it a reference to? Who is this second Lord that David makes? It's Christ. Uh, so, this is about Christ's um, victory, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, being seated at the right hand of the Father. It's in the New Testament over and over again we are told that this is fulfilled in Jesus and in, in, in His session in, His, uh, in the heavenly realm. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then I continue to read Psalm 110. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. And then here is verse 4, the one that is our focus this morning. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change His mind, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this this king, who uh, is to sit at God's right hand until his enemies are made a footstool, is also said to be a priest. He's a a priest king, uh, and he is a priest... In the order of, or after the order of, Melchizedek. okay. So this is very significant. Who is this priest-king? He is Jesus, the Messiah. In this psalm, David tells us that Yahweh has spoken to King David's Lord, namely the Messiah. And what has he said? Among other things, he has said, First of all, you are to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then secondly, he says other things too, but for our purposes this morning. Secondly, he has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It it is this second statement regarding Messiah being a priest king forever after the order of Melchizedek that Hebrews 7 picks up on and explains. And the argument can be summarized like this. This is my summary of it, and I think it follows Robertson's summary of it Messiah is a priest, he is a priest. But he is not of the order of Aaron. Who did the priests of the Old Covenant descend from? They all descended from Aaron. They were of the tribe of Levi. Levi. That's very significant. All of them were. So the priests of the Old Covenant who ministered at the temple, uh, at the, the tabernacle and then the temple of the Old Covenant, they were all of the order of Levi. The laws that were given to them by Moses... They were given to them as descendants of Aaron and of, of Levi. I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let me just read the outline. Aaron and his descendants served as priests under the Old Covenant at the tabernacle-slash-temple that God commanded Moses and then David-slash-Solomon to build. And according to the law that was revealed to Moses and given to Old Covenant Israel. And again, this was very good and right for a time. So, this whole system that came to be centered in Jerusalem and at that great temple that was built there. This whole system involving the priests of Aaron, the laws that were given to them, the sacrifices that they were to administer, they were all tightly linked to the old covenant that was made with Abraham and then later Moses, under which David himself served as king there in the land of Israel. I continue point three under B, Before Moses, Aaron, and the Old Covenant uh, were born, if I may speak in that way, Father Abraham paid tithes to a priest-king named Melchizedek. And this Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek's superiority over Abraham and over the line of the priests who would descend from him, namely Aaron, Levi, and the rest, were there uh, signified. Do you remember this story? It is found in the book of Genesis. Um, Abraham's nephew was taken captive by pagan kings, and he went and he rescued his nephew Lot. And then this strange figure appeared to him. He was named Melchizedek. He was the king and priest of Salem, Jerusalem, right? And and what did Abraham do except pay tithes? to this figure, indicating his superiority over him. And what did Melchizedek do to Abraham except blessed him? He blessed him. And the writer to the Hebrews makes much of this. He says, this shows us that this Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. He was greater and superior to Abraham. right? And then, point four, we need to remember that King David mentions Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Now, this is just so interesting. You might think, well, this Melchizedek figure, he was was an interesting figure. Abraham paid tithes to him, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That That was odd. But I guess we're done with that, right? Because God went a different direction. He decided to bring a great nation out of Abraham and to develop a priesthood. Uh, from some of his descendants, uh, Aaron and later Levi. So, this Melchizedek thing, it was just a blip on the radar screen. You know what I mean? It, it, it came and it's gone. We don't need to think about it anymore. But then he, this Melchizedek is mentioned again in Psalm 110. And he's mentioned by who? He's mentioned by King David himself, who is a type of Christ. Uh, David, uh, we're told, would, would give birth... Uh, uh, through, through genealogy to the Messiah. And it, it, it's, this Melchizedek figure is mentioned by King David kind of at the height of Israel's prosperity. The nation is made secure. David has it in his heart to build this temple. He himself is not allowed to build it, but he, he spends the last part of his life uh, making provisions for the building of the, of, of the temple so that his son Solomon might do it. But But it's strange because David... Even as this is the thing that is dominating his heart and his mind, and as he's making provisions for the building of this temple so that his son might do it, even in that very moment, he, he's pointing in a different direction. He's going to all of this effort to build this glorious temple where where the priests of Aaron and Levi might minister, where these sacrifices might be um, faithfully performed according to the law of Moses. But in Psalm 110, he's saying, Yeah, but there's something greater. There's another priest that is going to come of a different order altogether, and and he's far greater than these priests of Aaron and of, of Levi. So King David mentions Melchizedek in Psalm 110. This was 500 some odd years after Moses and Aaron. This was at the height of Israel's prosperity. This was as David was planning and providing for the construction of the temple in Jerusalem where the priests of Aaron and Levi would serve, and I even just say here, wrap your head around that, David was looking forward to a greater priest belonging to a totally different order than Aaron. In other words, when, when David, as much as he loved God's temple and wanted to see it built, and as much as he loved the worship there, he didn't put his hope there. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like he understood that this wasn't the permanent thing. This wasn't the final thing. This wasn't the, this wasn't the ultimate thing. He didn't put his hope there. But even David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks forward to the Messiah and refers to him as a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When Messiah came, he came as our great king. He was David's son and as our great high priest. But he was not a priest in the line of Aaron slash Levi, for he was of the tribe of Judah... He didn't descend from Levi, remember, He's of the tribe of, he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He serves in a different order as a priest of a different covenant, according to a different law, at a different temple, everything about the new is greater than the old, and there is no going back. That's the argument that's made here. You're following with that. New priest, according to a different order, serving a different covenant, serving under a different law, serving at a different temple. Uh, That's really the argument that is made here in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, I wanted to rapidly put all that before you, hopefully to to give you some clarity. And then I do want to try to go through Hebrews chapter 7 with you uh, very quickly. It's a marvelous chapter. I do note here that Robertson provides a very nice exposition of Hebrews 7 in his book. Please read it. This is going to be a very brief exposition. Uh, Robertson does divide this chapter into five parts. You could see his outline here one, two, three, four, five. Uh, and, and I'll follow uh, the structure that he gives. I think it is good. First of all, this Melchizedek, verse 1a um, of Hebrews 7. I've broken it up like this so that I can make comment. For this Melchizedek, what Melchizedek? Well, in 620 of the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Robertson makes much of this saying that when the author says, for this Melchizedek, he's actually presenting us a composite view of this figure Melchizedek. Like all at once, in a very brilliant way, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, the author uh, of, of the book of Hebrews is, is referring to this Melchizedek, but he's wanting us to see the composite view it is the historical Melchizedek that uh, lived in the days of Abraham. Uh, but it is also the fulfillment of Melchizedek, namely Jesus Christ, this Melchizedek. Okay. And then in 1b we read, King of Salem, that is of Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Uh, So you should remember this episode from Genesis 14, 17 through 20. You could read of it yourself uh, later. Verse 2b: He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So his name has significance. This Melchizedek had a, a special name. He is he is a king of righteousness, he is a king of peace. And in this way, of course, Christ is, is prefigured. Verse 3, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, some have taken this to mean that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, that literally he had no genealogy and literally he had no end of days, um, so that he was... Not not a true man, but, but a, a pre-incarnate appearance of, of the Christ. I think Robertson is right to say that, no, what the writer to the Hebrews is doing is he's talking about how Melchizedek appears to us in the narrative. He, he pops out of nowhere. He, his genealogy is never presented to us. We don't know who he who he descended from, nor are we told who descended from him. Remember how many genealogies are present in in the book of Genesis? I mean, there's a lot of ink spilled on tracing out uh, who begat who. And Melchizedek is just outside of all of that. So it's not that he was a manifestation of of Christ. It's not that he was the pre-incarnate Christ. He was a human being, a true king of Salem or Jerusalem. Uh, But his genealogy is not given to us. We're not told when He was born. We're not told anything about where His life ended, when His life ended. He just appears out of nowhere and then nothing else is said about Him. And I think the point is that He does function as a type of the Christ to come and of the priesthood that would come uh, with Him. He resembles the Son of God he continues a priest uh, forever. It's as if this figure, Melchizedek, he just he appears on the scene and then he we move on from him, but he's just kind of left hanging there and, and we're 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 waiting fulfillment. Does that make sense? As we move on with the, the narrative of Scripture, we're just waiting to kind of come back to this Melchizedek. What was he all about? You know, uh, who will he become? I think is is the idea. Verse 4: see how great this man was. To whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Because in this action, he's proven to be greater than Abraham. Verse 5, And those descendants of Levi, who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man that is, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, in the case of, that is, in the case of Levi. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. And I think this is a composite view of Melchizedek slash Christ. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Do you get the argument here? Everything about this narrative says that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then the writer to the Hebrews says that in a sense, Levi, the the priests of Levi who were born from Abraham, in a sense, they themselves all paid tithes to this Melchizedek because they were in Abraham's loins. So when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, he was basically doing so on on behalf of all who descended from him. That principle might sound really strange to us, but in in the Bible you find this principle of federal headship, uh, of headship all over the place. So, Aaron and Levi and all who descended from from them who were themselves descendants from Abraham were were really represented by Abraham in this episode when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Can you see the argument that the writer to the Hebrews is developing here? He's saying, don't forget about this figure. He popped out of nowhere. We're not told what became of him, but he was a king and he was a priest of Jerusalem, of, of Salem. We can't forget about them and we have to realize that this episode is recorded for us in the Scriptures for a reason. There's a lot that happened in history that's not recorded for us in the Scriptures. But this episode is emphasized. So we need to have it in our minds and we need to see the relationship that was established. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and he's greater than all the priests who would descend from Abraham. I think it's really marvelous to consider here. Okay, let's continue Point two, uh, this is covering verses 11 through 15 of Hebrews 7, and Robertson gives the heading after the order of Melchizedek in his outline of this chapter. Verse 11, now, so the argument's going to be developed, right? Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? It's a good question. If if perfection before God could have been obtained through the Aaronic or the Levitical priests, why would there be a need for another priest and another priesthood? If there was nothing deficient about this one, that Aaron and Levi ministered over, why would there be for a, a need for another priest and another order? Verse, 20, uh, verse 12, rather. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well, because the law is given for a particular priesthood and to govern that, sacri- govern that sacrificial system. So, if there's going to be a change in the priesthood, there's also going to be a change in the law. For the one of whom these things are spoken, that is Christ, belonged to another tribe. We've already said he belonged to the tribe of Judah from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So here uh, we see the author to the Hebrews, can I just say Paul? Yes. Uh, okay, Paul. <laughs> um, we, we see him developing this argument. He's going, if, if perfection could have been attained under this Levitical priesthood and the law that was given to them and the sacrifices and the temple, there wouldn't have been a need for another priesthood. There wouldn't have been a need for a change in the law or in, our, or, or in the worship of the people of God. Now, as we go on to Hebrews 7, 16 through 19, Robertson gives this the heading, You are a priest forever. Verse 16, Who, and now we are speaking of Christ, this Christ has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. How did the priests of the Old Covenant come to be priests? I can't hear it. By birth, they were born of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. So, they come to be priests. Um, They come to be priests by genealogy, right? But here, Paul, he's speaking of Christ, and he says, He has become a priest... Not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, because after all, he did not come from Levi. He came as a a member of the tribe of Judah. But he came to be a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Uh, In other words, by virtue of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, right? because He has conquered the grave. He therefore can be our great high priest and intercede for us forever and ever and in fact bring us to God. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of Him, and here is where Paul I believe uh, does quote Psalm 110 verse 4 for it is witnessed of Him in the Scriptures that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This um, statement in Hebrews 7.17 is building off of arguments presented earlier in the book, which we have not had that we we do not have the time to to display. This is building off of Hebrews 5.1 through 10 and 6.20. Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12 is an interlude in this in in this this book wherein Paul warns against dullness. Actually sent that to you in a message earlier this week. It it, I, it makes me smile because I think Paul is dealing with complex matters here, and he's kind of building. He's building. He's building, and then in and then in Hebrews five, eleven, he just kind of pauses and says, "Listen, this teaching is hard to present because you've become dull." <laughs> you 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 you. you you're not interested in listening, beware. It kind of coincides with what's been said in the preaching on Sunday morning or last couple of weeks, all of these warnings we have to receive the Word of God in a very careful way, you know, to, to listen attentively to the Word of God, etc. So, Paul I think does warn uh, his listeners to pay attention, pay attention, and then he goes on with his argument. Verse 18 of Hebrews 7 says, For on the one hand A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So, when the new covenant was instituted, the old covenant law, the ceremonial law, the civil laws given to old covenant Israel were taken away because of their their weakness. They could not perfect the worshiper. So they're set to the side, but a new new covenant is instituted with a new priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, And there is a new temple, there's a new way of worship, and it's better. That's the argument that that Paul is making uh, throughout uh, throughout this, this book. right? So we have a better hope that is introduced. And it is through this hope which we do actually draw near to God, because it is through this hope that we are perfected. We, we hope, uh, not in the priests of Aaron, not in the priests of Levi, not in the sacrificial system that was given under the Old Covenant, which was good for its time. But our hope is rooted in who? It is rooted in Jesus Christ the Messiah. And He is our great High Priest, not descended from Judah, not descended from Levi, But descended, we might say, that's not the right word in fact, forget it, scratch that. Not descended, but in the order of Melchizedek. And how did he come to have this priesthood? Well, it is by an indestructible life. It's by his victory over death, his resurrection from from the grave. And where did he ascend to? He didn't go into the Holy of Holies there in that temple in Jerusalem. He entered into the Heavenly Holy of Holies. And he is able to perfect us, to actually bring us to God, the veil of the temple being torn in two, being symbolic of this fact. You you get the picture of all this. So he has gone into heaven and he has sat down at the Father's right hand as our King, amen. Also as our priest. And he makes continual intercession for us. He has he's he had no beginning as the Son of God. And he will have no end because he has conquered death. So he makes continual intercession for us. He will intercede for us forever and ever, and never will he, he cease. Never will he grow tired or, or weary. That's the arguments building here. Let's continue to read in Hebrews 7, verses 20 through 21. Uh, Robertson gives this section, verses 20 through 25, the heading, The Lord has sworn you are a priest. He says in verse 20, it, and, it, it, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. So again, Psalm 110 verse 4 is cited. And he's drawing our attention to the oath that God Himself has made. We saw it there in Psalm 110 verses 1 through 4. That, that God Himself gave an oath and promised that this one, that is to say, Jesus Christ the Messiah, would be a priest forever. Verse 22, This makes Jesus, so there it is, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A guarantor is the one who guarantees the reality of something. This makes Jesus the guarantor of of a better covenant. That's really the whole argument of the book of Hebrews, as I've said. You Jewish people, you, you, you ethnic Jews who have professed faith in Jesus, you are being tempted to go back to the old covenant, into the old covenant ways. Um, maybe some were being drawn back to the complexity of that form of worship. It was more visible. It was more tangible, if you, if you will. Maybe they were tempted by that. Um, maybe they missed those things now that they had engaged in the simplicity of new covenant worship. Maybe it was persecution that was tempting them to go back because for a time the Christians were hotly persecuted whereas the Jews were given a pass. It really doesn't matter. The argument that is made in this book is that the new is greater. The new is better. Where am I in my outline Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Um, he, he's the one, let me, let me hone in on this just a little bit longer. He is the one who guarantees the reality of this better covenant. He is the one who has secured all of the benefits of this covenant. It's really a marvelous thing to consider. If I were to press you and I, and I were to say, why is it that your sins are forgiven? Why are they washed away? Why do you have the blessing of justification and adoption and the promise of sanctification? Why will you go to heaven into the very presence of God uh, when when you pass from this world? Why are all of these blessings and many more why are they yours? Your answer should be very simple. You could even just use one word. Jesus. Jesus. It's by His work. It's by what He has done. These new covenant blessings are mine because of Jesus, my great king and my great high priest. He's the guarantor of this new covenant. He's the one who guarantees these blessings are mine because of what He has done for me. I think that is the meaning of verse 22. Verse verse 23, The former priests, this is wonderful to consider, the former priests, the one who ministered under the old covenant, they were of Aaron, they were of Levi, The former priests were many in number. Why? Why were there so many of them? (laughs) There were many of them who ministered all at once. And there were many of them who ministered over time. Why? Well, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So even if we were to just think of the high priests, they would succeed one another. Why? Because they they would die. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And Melchizedek was a picture of that. We're not told of where he came from. We're not told of the day of his death. He's without genealogy. He appears in the narrative as being without beginning or end. And and in this way he was a suitable picture of of Jesus the Messiah, our great high priest, because he has no end. He went into the grave, but He rose again. And so there is only one great high priest of the new covenant, and He will be our high priest forever and ever. This gets very practical. Verse 25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to perfect us. He is able to truly bring us into the presence of God. He is able to keep us forever and ever. Those priests under the Old Covenant, as good as they were, and as faithful as some of them were, to do God's will in those days and to minister and to pray on behalf of the people of God, um, they were mere men. They were frail and they were weak. They did not have the capacity in and of themselves to bring people into the presence of God. They themselves needed a priest and a mediator to intercede for them, didn't they? And they would also be hindered by the fact and reality of death. The last section here is verses 26-28 through of Hebrews 7. Robertson gives the heading, You are a priest. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens." If we were to think for a moment of the priests of the Old Covenant, none of these things could be said. Wouldn't you agree? The priests of the, the, the Old Covenant were not truly holy. They were not truly innocent. They were not truly unstained. They were not truly separated from sinners, and therefore none of them were exalted above the heavens. "...in and of themselves. But our high priest is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and he has been exalted above the heavens to the right hand of the Father as our priest king." Verse 27, "...he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself." This high priest does not offer up sacrifices on behalf of himself and others. He himself is the sacrifice that has been offered up for, not himself, but for others in obedience to the command of God. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, that is, under the law of Moses. But the word of the oath, coming from Psalm 110, verse 4, which came later than the law in the days of of David, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Please sympathize with me. This was a lot to get through in in one Sunday school um, uh, session here. But do you see the argument that is being made and how it relates to our current study? Our current study is really all about the, the question, how should we view the Old Covenant order? How should we view the land that was promised to Abraham and taken possession of in the days of Joshua? How should we view the people that were set apart in the world for a time, the ethnic Israelites? How should we view the law that was given to them? I'm not here referring to the ever-abiding moral law, but the ceremonial laws and the civil laws that were given to them. How should we view the temple itself? How should we view the priesthood that ministered there? And the sacrifices that they they administered? How should we view all of that? This is really at the heart of what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's seeking to answer that question. And, And what is the answer that is given ultimately? It's that these things uh, that were instituted in the days of Moses, they were pointing forward to Christ and they were intended to pass away. And there is so much evidence, if we pay attention to what the, what, what the Bible says prior to Moses, and the book of Genesis, and the things that happened in the days of Abraham, there are so many indicators that God's purposes were, f- were far greater than to have this intense focus upon one small people living in a very small place on the earth. You know, his, his purposes were to, through them, bless the nations. And through them, to bring the Messiah into the world, the one who is able to, in fact, bring us perfect into the very presence of God. Our hope, our trust is to be in Him. There's no going back. There's no going back. What we have today under the new covenant is far greater, for it is the fulfillment of these things. Let's close in prayer and then um, you could have some time to to reflect upon these wonderful truths. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is so very rich. I do pray that we would be students of the word, that we would read the Old Testament and the New, that we would listen intently when they are read and preached. Father, I pray that we, with the passing of time, would be able to see that Christ indeed is the central figure of the Holy Scriptures, uh, that he is the one who has provided for our salvation and that all of our trust is to be in Him. God, I pray that we would grow in our appreciation for all of the benefits that come to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our great King and He is our great High Priest. After the order of Melchizedek, our trust is in Him. Amen.